Hey there, it's CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, true crime to the LGBT community. Please join me as I hop upon my beautiful unicorn, sprinkle myself with protective fairy dust, and open a closet full of stories just waiting to be told. You can catch the show on almost all podcast apps. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Beyond the Rainbow Pod. Remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer. Outlaws and Scorned Women is intended for entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this show should ever be construed as actual legal advice. Also, it is chock full of adult content, so we do recommend a little bit of listener discretion. Happy Apocalypse. Hey, happy <laughs> pandemic to you. Jesus. So, uh, yeah, we're finally recording not in the same room together, and it's weird. Or in the I same town, even. I, we're not even in the same city. Uh, we're, we're, we're podcasting like adults now. That's right. Your, your husband made fun of me for the way that we've been podcasting before. He was like, what is this, some kind of 90s radio show you've been doing? Now you guys are going <gasps> to you're gonna podcast like you're in the 2000s. Wait, and that was my husband that, that was mocking? That was your husband. Oh. When I did my contactless delivery of a microphone to your house, <laughs> he just he's an extrovert, so he had to step out on the porch and shout a conversation at me from across the yard because, bless his heart, he That to. was people. People yeah. came by and he had to say hi. <laughs> a person arrived, a person he's not related to in any way. <laughs> a new person, a new adult person. Ooh. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, we are finally, uh, we, we have worked out our technical issues. We think. Hopefully. Maybe. We, up to this point, every issue that we've encountered up to this point, we could create more before yeah. we're done here. I think Lord. there's a plausible case for both resolving mm-hmm. and and having undiscovered issues. So in this brave new world of pandemic podcasting, um, the show format is going to be a little different. Oh, hey, I should intro the show. <laughs> well, life is different. I mean, everything is weird. Who intros everything. Everything just runs together right now. It's like, is it's... it Tuesday? Is it Saturday? <laughs> is it 1999? I don't know. Time has lost all meaning. I was I was drinking my afternoon cup of coffee at like five o'clock the other day because who cares what time I go to bed? Nobody. That's who. Well, because you have, you know, pajama pants for work and you have pajama mm-hmm. pants for not work. Yeah. I, I change into my, my formal yoga pants for when I'm actually working. That is awesome. Before your awesome intro, I saw a story from Walmart that oh, no. said there was an uptick in sales of shirts but no corresponding uptick in sales of pants <laughs> if that is indicative of the world we're in and i think uh, there will be an uptick in pants it will be all the people like me who are eating all the you know flavor bath plastic <laughs> goldfish we will be buying pants on the other side of this all the circus animal crackers the because... pink and white ones because they're so good and because nothing fits and i ate yeah. all the pop tarts <sighs> okay, I'm gonna let me put on my <clears throat> my intro voice. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women. We are back. It's amazing. Uh, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. My name is Stephanie, and I'm just a drama llama who loves her home state. Uh, I'm Stephanie. I'm a, I'm a <laughs> legal practitioner of sorts. Uh, and I'm a, you know, the sidekick cohort of the show. <laughs> you're, you're the educated one. <laughs> you're, the, you're the lawyer one. I know about news bits, Walmart stories, you know. Yeah, that the kind occasional of thing. thing that's happening. You went to school for this. I did not. I did. Um, I took classes, a ton of classes, and I passed a bar exam. And so, I mean, it's got to. I got to be able to exchange it for something in this brave new world. <laughs> <laughs> and so we we do so uh, by talking into microphones and screaming into the void and socializing in the only way that we can now, which is via our computer screens, socially so, distanced as everybody should be. Yeah, God love God, stay home and save all of our lives. Lord have mercy. Um, so yeah, because we are actually uh, recording in separate locations now and life is crazy and busy and my kids are all up in my face all the time and your kids are all up in your face all the time. Um, we're having to mess with the format of the show a little bit. So up till now, um, you know, we've had our little intro together and then we would adjourn to listening to my pre-recorded dramatic telling of a crime story. And uh, and then we would come back and, and talk about law stuff. Um Nobody's got time for that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new world. It's a new format. It's a new everything. Nothing matters anymore. <laughs> so new format. It's a new day. It's a new life. So um, <clears throat> this story, before I get into it, like I went into this. I was like, ooh, the stiletto killer. Ooh, she killed her boyfriend. Ooh, this is going to be so juicy. Like, I went into this with a certain degree of glee. I was like, ooh, some man got it and he deserved it. And this is going to be... No, oh. no, that is not the story. It's so... Oh, no, there, there's no glee to be found here, at least not in his fate. So, uh, yeah, there, there was, there was a, a reversal of expectations for me in going through this story. Uh, and I know you've already looked at uh, the legal, legal documents, so you can look at how the law plays out. Um, I'm hoping that as I tell this story, you can react. Oh. You can inter feel free to interject. That is so uh, funny because your storytelling is art. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't interrupt your art. I'm like going to just listen yeah. with my, my elbows on the <laughs> table, just looking right at you. But, um. but remember that I'm a theater kid and I need to know that my audience is like engaged okay. and adoring me. Otherwise, my soul will wither and die like, like a little fairy that's not getting clapped for. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, this story is not what you think is going to be. So uh, buckle up, buttercups. Let's get into it. <laughs> Shit. I usually start this with a, hey, did y'all ever hear about uh, the stiletto killer? But like, I'm talking to you. But it's okay to do that because I'm not going to interrupt you and be like, yes. I've read articles too at this point. <laughs> yes, I also did some research and you, I read you the told appellate me what documents. I should read about. <laughs> <laughs> you assigned me this case. Of course, I've heard of it. Uh, so, yeah, did y'all ever hear about the stiletto killer? So, picture it, right? In the way, way back machine, we go back and we see the, the verdant landscape of Houston, Texas in 2013. It was a simpler time back then, pre pandemic. People gathered in groups in places. They walked the streets freely. 
The, the most dangerous thing that we had to fear was fear itself. And also maybe various forms of cancer and the violence of our fellow man. But here's the thing about Houston, though. I grew up in Houston, right? Uh, so I, I speak with a certain Houston bias, um, which is against Houston. I moved away from Houston. <laughs> That's. I was all like thinking, oh, the food, it's so good. And you were like, I am against Houston. <laughs> I, <laughs> what about the food and the art district? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the museum district is really cool. It's super shishi. And the zoo is really nice. Mm-hmm. And Herman Park is right there. It's like a little bitty central park in and the middle of Houston. you can take that little rail and just have yeah, a day of it. Th- there's a janky old train that you can ride around in Herman Park. It's super cute. Um, and yeah, there's some really great food. And a lot of it is Gulf-based, like out of the Gulf of Mexico. So I don't eat it because I know what happens in the Gulf of Mexico. Again, I grew up in Houston. <laughs> but the thing about Houston and the reason I moved away is it is always, always, never not 100% humidity. And in the summertime, temperatures can get to be 100 degrees or more. So it's hot and sticky it's like trying to walk through soup it's air you can wear yes and yes it's yes. so disgusting and it's so a swamp. it's yeah. like a squishy ground new yeah. orleansy swamp yeah it's very much like That's this right. is all gulf of mexico coastline shit <laughs> so that kind of environment is really highly conducive to interpersonal drama so i've got to think that 911 operators on June 9th, 2013, at 3.41 a.m., we're not super surprised to get a phone call from a frantic, sobbing woman. Now, the 911 operator managed to get her to calm down enough to say her name. And her name is Anna Trujillo. And Anna, through in between the hiccups and the sobs and the hysteria, manages to say that her boyfriend beat her up. So she hit him and now he's bleeding and he might be dead and you need to send somebody over and help right now. So the operator dispatches police to the park lane, the park lane. It has its own. It has a title. The park (laughs) lane is a super swank condo building in the Houston Museum District overlooking Herman Park. This place is posh. Uh, Not a lot of bleeding boyfriend phone calls in the wee hours of the night to this place. So the police show up. They ride up to the 18th floor. They knock on the door and the door is answered by a teeny tiny 44-year-old Anna. And she is still hysterical and, oh, by the way, covered in blood. It is all on her hands. It's soaked into her jeans. She is a bloody mess. So they um, politely request that she take them to the person who's bleeding. uh, And she leads them down the hall uh, into this big, gorgeous condo. Kind of, I imagine, following her own bloody trail of little footprints across the carpet to her boyfriend, Stefan Anderson. Stefan is on his back in the hallway in a pool of his own blood that is soaking deep into this very nice plush carpet. And he, his face is a complete bloody ruin. It's like hamburger. And the police are a little taken aback by this, but they, they reach over to try and check his pulse. He has no pulse. And they can't even attempt CPR because they can't find his mouth and his nose. God, that's just... It's so bad. It's so bad that they assume he took a shotgun blast to the face. And so the police ask Anna where the weapon is. And she points to the bloodstain next to Stefan's head where there is a five and a half inch blue suede stiletto high heel shoe 
that is bloody all the way up the heel to the sole of the shoe. That's the murder weapon. So the police take Anna into custody because she killed a man. With a shoe. (laughs) She killed a man with her shoe. Now, at this point, the news crews are outside because, again, nobody calls the cops to the park lane in the wee hours of the night. So this case is like an hour old and the media frenzy has already started. Wait until they hear about what the murder weapon was. So the cops take her outside and there are, and I'll put these pictures up on Instagram, there are pictures of her standing by the cop car in her bloody jeans. Mm. Like her, her jeans are just solid red brown from like hips to ankles. It's so much blood. Like she's wearing half of her boyfriend. It's and insane. That That is just one of those, it's not like watching Law and Order or, you know, that episode mm-hmm. of the cop show because there would be that much. There yeah. would be, yeah. It's so, it's so, so much. Um, So they take little Anna, uh, they take her into custody, they take her to the police station to get her statement. And Anna proceeds to talk to the police for three hours, just monologuing at the cops. She tells them all about how she and Stefan met and how he was this tall, handsome, older man with a super cool accent. And you know what? Pause Anna real quick. Let's pause her story. Let's talk about (laughs) Stefan. Okay. Stefan Andersson is, at the time of his death, 59 years old. He was born in Sweden. He moved to the United States in the 1980s, uh, where by the time he got to Houston, he was a brilliant pharmaceutical researcher specializing in women's reproductive health. And he taught at the University of Houston's Center for Nuclear Receptor and Cell Signaling. So uh, he's brilliant and very well paid because uh as is evidenced by his living at the park lane and an Um, expert in women's hormones (laughs) well sure medically speaking maybe not so far as and we'll see maybe not so far as interacting with them when they are interesting um but so stefan is he's a a large swedish man anna is a very small hispanic woman Uh, And in that way, and in many other ways, they were very much an odd couple. Uh, But this is the story that she's about, that she's starting to tell the police, right? So we cut back to Anna. We'll get back to Stefan. Cut back to Anna. She's Mm. telling the police about how they met. And within days, uh, she's moving into Stefan's condo because he fell head over heels in love with her, asked her to marry him. But she did not say yes. Right away, she was hesitant because, according to Anna, Stefan was an obsessive, jealous, abusive alcoholic. He was a very mean drunk. And at the beginning of 2013, she had had enough of it. She packed up her bags to leave him. And she went to Mexico to visit some family and take a break away from Stefan and to to give him a chance to get his act cleaned up, maybe get into rehab and dry out. And Stefan begged her to come back. And he was calling her every day while she was in Mexico, begging her to come back, telling her that, that he had gotten into rehab and he cleaned himself up and he stopped drinking. So she agreed to come back. So... They went out on the night of June 8th to celebrate. They went out to a bar to celebrate her return and Stefan's sobriety. I, okay. <laughs> I mean, it, that tracks, right? <laughs> sure, sure. Because um, they started mm. with wine, but out of respect for, for his sobriety, they switched to tequila shots. I guess this is all according to the bar tab. We find out later. They started with wine. They switched Mm -hmm. to tequila shots. Okay. So according to Anna, 
Much to her shock, the formerly alcoholic and now totally sober man who had just gone on a drinking binge with her at a bar was an angry drunk by the time they got home. And he he was yelling at her and he was verbally abusing her so and accusing her of flirting with other men while they were at the bar. And so she said she was going to leave. I just hit my microphone. And she said that she was going to leave. And so she tried to leave, but Stefan flew into a rage and said that she would never leave him again and got himself in between her and the door. And the more she pleads to leave, the angrier he gets. She tries to bolt for the door, but Stefan grabs her and wrestles her and they're falling over the couch and they're slamming into walls and they're knocking over the coffee table until finally Stefan pins this teeny tiny little woman down to the floor and she can't breathe. She's about to pass out. She reaches for the closest thing at hand to defend herself. It's her shoe and she swings it at him and hits him over the head to get him to stop but he doesn't let her go he's too big he's too angry he's too drunk so she just swings at him over and over and over again until finally he stops moving and she pushes him off of her and she realizes he might be dead and she should call the police and that's a harrowing tale like that is yes that is that is a reality for so many women in this world and if anything that she said is true that sounds like a really solid case for, for trying to save your own life. I, I think a strong argument could be made. I don't disagree. There is a quote from Assistant District Attorney John Jordan, where he says, quote, Whenever a woman kills a man, the first question is, what did he do? There is this perception out there that because women are generally not as violent as men, clearly he must have deserved it. End mm. quote. So, yeah, that was what I thought when I went into this story. I, I thought, my God. She stabbed a man to death with a stiletto shoe. Like, what did he do to her to make her do that? And the cops were inclined to believe her, too, because, again, she had three hours to dramatically make her case. So good for her. But they're doing their job. So they keep her in custody until they can verify their story, verify her story. And they take pictures of her in her bloody clothes. And then they have her stripped so they can get pictures of her injuries from this epic battle that she was just in. Except, oops. There are no new injuries on Miss Anna Trujillo. Meanwhile, the medical examiner is taking a first look at Stefan's body and his injuries, which are numerous. He has a series of puncture wounds in his forearms and in the palms of his hands. These are classic defensive wounds. If any of us have ever seen Law and Order SVU, yeah, you're holding your hands up. And no. Me too. It's like, oh, if somebody's coming at your face, you throw your hands up. Right. And if somebody's coming at you with a high heel shoe hitting you, you're going to get stabbed in your hands and in your forearms. So he's got these classic defensive wounds. Then they took a look at his head. Stefan Anderson was stabbed in the face and head with this high heeled shoe at least 25 times. You just imagine. One more time. At least, because they couldn't count more because the damage was too great, at least 25 times. Like, that's that takes a long time. Like, just the amount. And that's not counting the injuries on his arms and hands. Like, that's, that's just it's so much time taken. That's so many strikes. It's just, ugh, it's a lot. It's a lot. So he's got all of this damage to her, to him, and she's got no damage to her. It's not looking great for Miss Trujillo. Getting to the blood evidence in the apartment, in the condo, all of the blood splatter in the condo itself was on the floor or up to two feet up the wall. There was none any higher than that. 
which suggested that all of the violence happened close to the ground. And also on Anna, all of the blood was on her jeans or on her hands, which suggested that she got soaked. She got the blood soaked into her while she was straddling Stefan. All of this suggests that Anna was the attacker and the primary aggressor in this situation, not Stefan, that she mm-hmm. sat on his chest and stabbed him dozens and dozens of times over and over with the stiletto heel of her shoe. And all he ever did was try to shield himself from it. Right, like while she had him pinned. Honestly, how did she have him pinned down? She's sitting on He's a big man. She's a little woman, but she's just, he never raised a hand to her. None of the evidence suggested that he ever raised a hand to retaliate or try or try to, to shove her off or hit her back or anything. All he did was try to not get stabbed in the face and it didn't work out very well for him. So 24 hours after being taken into custody, Anna Trujillo was arrested for the murder of Stefan Anderson. Now, pause. <clears throat> there is a lot of slut shaming in this story surrounding Anna Trujillo. A lot. And uh, I would like to take this moment to state it has been and uh, will remain the official position of outlaws and scorned women that we do not cast judgments upon the sex lives of consenting adults so long as nobody gets hurt. Which is the point where Anna loses us, frankly, uh, because somebody got hurt all the way to death. Okay, so the the cops. Yes, what do you have? I, I did. Well, I was going to say that biases kept coming to mind because mm-hmm. Stefan is a Swedish-born, mild-mannered scientist, mm-hmm. and so we have this picture that's developing, and she is a Mexican-born, mm-hmm. impassioned, and you know, cast in a very crazed and wild light. Mm -hmm. And so we also have a tale of two very different immigrant stories. Yeah. Oh, look at you. Yeah. Going for the depth. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's true. And it comes up. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely a thing. Like there were some stereotypes being played out here. And unfortunately, Anna really leaned really hard into the the crazy hot Latina chick stereotype and Lord. So the police start investigating in earnest. They start really getting into it. And it turns out, shockingly, if you talk to anyone who was not Anna, you got a super different version of their love story. Um, So quick history on Anna herself. Uh, At the point that we meet her, with this whole relationship with Stefan. She is a twice-divorced mother of two girls. Um, And at this point, the girls are teenagers. They are living in the suburbs of Houston with their stepdad. And honestly, they're probably better off without their mother in their lives at this stage in her life. Just just hot take on that situation. (laughs) I don't... That's just my opinion. But they they seem to be healthy and well-adjusted. And honestly, I never found their names in the news. So congratulations to their stepdad for keeping them out. Appreciate that. Um, Anna loved the big city life. She was that party girl in Houston. She was super vivacious and she was outgoing and arguably really unstable. Um, You know, we all at some point knew that girl who she shows up at the party and everyone goes, oh, shit. (laughs) Something's going to happen. Something's She's either going to dance on a table or pick a fight or both. It's going to be something. If she starts ordering tequila shots, I'm the fuck out of here. Like, that's <laughs> that's the kind of girl that Miss Anna Trujillo uh, was. And 
she was also a serial dater of wealthy men. Uh, she was essentially homeless. She didn't have a place of her own. She would just date a guy and shack up with him until um, until they would their relationship would blow up in some kind of big drama. And then she would use that as the sob story to bounce her to the next guy and shack up with him. And that's fine if that's the life that you're going to lead, but not necessarily the way that she did it because there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of drama, and a lot of that drama was physically violent. Um, Anna Anna had a way of provoking people and attacking people, which it all kind of uh, makes sense and goes together. She has this history of these violent, abusive relationships, mm-hmm. and then she gets into a relationship, and the patterns are also destructive. And that may be what happened there. We can try and psychoanalyze this lady all we want, but the facts oh. are. Uh, so she she was uh, bouncing from dude to dude, and it turns out the little meet cute that she described, where she and Stefan met and fell head over heels in love, actually happened in the lobby of the Park Lane because she was already staying with another guy who lived at the Park Lane. What? She's walking through the lobby. She sees Stefan, and he is a handsome silver fox of an older man with an adorable i i imagine adorable because i think swedish <laughs> accents are are fantastic um with this this classy accent and they met and within days of that she ditched the last guy and moved up to the 18th floor of the same building so it's not awkward there's no strange uncomfortable elevator rides after that i'm sure everything was fine so you got Stefan, who, by all accounts from his friends and his family, was the quintessential introvert. He was extremely intellectual, very educated, wealthy, doing his part to contribute to society and the betterment of mankind. He also had an alcohol problem. He was a wine drunk. He loved wine from everything I could find. And he was just a quiet drinker. And his drinking was maybe starting to creep into a day drinking situation. Right around the time that he met Anna, and she was not the best influence on him. Anna is completely bombastic and outgoing, the extrovert. And uh, she has a drinking problem in that she is, but she's, so Stefan is a, a quiet, gentle wino. Anna is a mean tequila shots drunk. So the two of them together, they are the odd couple. They're just as opposite as they can be. And yet somehow they they are here together in this perfect storm of just aggravating each other's badness. I don't know, man. I don't. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I don't understand how they got together in the first place. Apparently, Stefan never raised his voice, much less his fist. He was a completely non-assertive personality, whereas Anna was a completely domineering serial DUI offender who had been detained in bar fights and had multiple ex-boyfriends who would come forward later with stories about her physically attacking them, usually by biting them in the face. So this was not a good combination, the two of these. And it became very clear over the course of this investigation, finding out just this basic information about who these two people were, who the aggressive one would have been in a confrontation. Uh, it became very clear to the police that Anna was the abuser in this relationship. And this is where you kind of start getting into the stigma of men not men being abused by their female partners and not being able to, to talk about it. Now, that's an interesting and real point. Like that's- Yeah, like... Friends said that Stefan would show up to places with a black eye and never talk about it. 
And they just didn't they didn't ask him about it. They didn't talk about it because dudes don't talk about if their teeny tiny Latina girlfriend is beating them. What the hell? Yeah. So the management at Park Lane had warned Stefan that there were complaints from other residents like formal written on paper complaints from other residents in the building about Anna and about her behavior. So things were really starting to get very uh, uncomfortable for Stefan. Things are starting to come to a head. Uh, Anna is super domineering and she's abusing him and his drinking is getting out of hand. It's starting to affect his work. It's definitely starting to affect his living situation. But again, Stefan is not an assertive person. So he broke up with her by sending her to Mexico by like paying for her trip to Mexico and then changing the locks while she was out of town. Ah, okay. Which which flip the genders on this situation. And yeah, I mean, I have heard stories about women who break up with their boyfriends by like they go the boyfriend goes on an, on a trip and then they change the locks and cut them off. Mm-hmm. And they just try and like like just that's the only way they can see to get out of that relationship and get out of this situation but it's reversed because it's the big the big wealthy white guy uh trying to get out of this abusive relationship with his girlfriend so yet none of the calling and begging her to come home happened that that anna had reported while she was in mexico that was not a thing while Anna was in Mexico, Stephen Stefan did go into rehab and he did try and get himself cleaned up. He did try and turn his drinking around. But then Anna came back and she had a tendency to show up places where Stefan was. He kept a really predictable and regular schedule. He had places where he liked to eat lunch, places where he liked to eat dinner, places where she knew that he would be and she would show up. She showed up at one place. It was this taco place that they liked to go to while he was in the middle of lunch. She walked in, bit him on the face and walked out. And like, that's just their interaction. That was that's what happened. That was Anna's like, hi, I found you and I bit you. I really don't understand that moment. But that was there. That was how she re- she interacted with him. She that stalked moment him. becomes incredible in the that moment plays a part in the trial. Oh, awesome, because I didn't know that. <laughs> you oh, Put a pin in that. We'll talk about it later. Um, so Seth, Stefan, oh, bless his heart, he is, he was such a, a sweet pushover that she would show up to bars where he was at and she would just run up a tab and he'd pay it. Um, he let her crash on his couch. He let her back in the condo, let her crash on his couch because all of her other friends kicked her out because she was um, disruptive and violent and unstable and drunk a lot and generally really unpleasant and a terrible influence on everyone around her. I don't like Anna Trujillo very much. Sorry, super biased. I just revealed it. Ta-da, surprise. I'm so it, it wasn't coming out at all. Up no, until this I'm sure, point. <laughs> like, no, I totally snuck that in there. So we get to the night in question. And what we know for sure, based on security camera for- footage, is that Stefan and Anna were at a bar. And you can see on the camera, they are drinking wine. They switched to tequila shots. Uh, Anna is being a loud, super laughy, hair flipping all over the place, drunk. And Stefan is gently sort of loitering nearby her and trying to convince her to leave. She doesn't want to leave. He finally gets her to leave. He calls a cab, finally gets her to get out to it. But she's pissed. And they get in the cab and she is angry. She's cussing and she's kicking the back of the driver's seat. We know because the cab driver testifies at trial and testifies to all the cussing and the kicking and the and the just being incredibly difficult 
Stefan, quiet the entire drive. They pull up in front of the park lane. Anna gets out, stands on the sidewalk, and is screaming into the cab at Stefan. The cab driver tells him, Mr. Anderson, I'm afraid something's going to happen. Just close the door and I will drive you somewhere else. Again, flip the genders on this situation. That's 110% what any cab driver with half a heart would do. You take that poor abused girl out of there. But in this, it's the guy. And he says, no, thank you. That's okay. And he pays the cab and he gets out and he follows Anna inside. And then the security cameras in the Park Lane lobby track the two of them getting to the elevator. And that's around 2 a.m. And that is the last time anybody but Anna sees Stefan Anderson alive. Yeah. His last words to the cabbie. I found this in one of the articles. Oh, yeah. He squeezed her hand and said, no, thanks. I'm. A, it'll be OK. I'll be OK. And he got oh. oh. I know, because apparently she said, um, you know, everything you said, you've got to go. Mm. And that woman is not in her right mind. And, uh-huh. you know, definitely testified to the fact that she thought something was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's so like everything about that situation was so charged and so, so just bubbling with violence, like something was going to happen. But so he goes upstairs with her and we know what we know what we are pretty sure happens after that. Mm. Um, so. Let's jump to the trial, where I'm sure you will have more details. I'm just going to run over it real quick, and you can fill in some stuff later. So the defense argument, from what I could tell, the defense's argument was that Stefan was a physically gigantic, physically gigantic, I can't talk. He was not. He was not gigantic. No, he was not gigantic. That's gigantic (laughs) and abusive combined into one word. He was a, I'm trying to read my notes and I'm terrible at it. A physically gigantic. (laughs) He was big and scary. <laughs> he was giantly, bigly, words? bigly. He was, he's the biggest big biggerton of big town. He's a Viking. That's, he's, yeah, he's just, yeah. yes. And an abusive alcoholic yeah. who was so furious that Anna had embarrassed him in the cab and et cetera, et cetera, that he attacked her and she was just defending herself. And they indicated that they were so sure of their case that that's why they never put Anna on the stand. The prosecution, I feel, could have just sort of gestured at this mountain of evidence that Anna was the abuser and Stefan was her victim and she was the attacker and he was the dead guy and that she had shown a pattern of escalation in her relationships and her violent outbursts and that she would just do it again unless she got locked up for the rest of her life. But no, they didn't stop there. Because they had all this evidence and they had this shoe. The shoe appeared in the courtroom. I have pictures of it covered in bloodstains and hair. So that's horrible. But they show the shoe. They show the murder weapon. And uh, they also show an x-ray of the shoe. Just so that the, the jury really understands how dangerous a weapon this thing is. And inside this shoe, it's got a solid steel skeleton. That heel is a solid steel spike that is designed to hold the full body weight of a person. And it's got a handle on it that is also designed to hold the full body weight of an adult person. So in an x-ray, which I'll be posting on the Instagrams, uh, the x-ray of the shoe, it looks like an ice pick with like a curved handle. So yeah, totally valid murder weapon. And they demonstrate that by hauling a dummy into the, into the courtroom, climbing up on the table and using the other shoe, the one that wasn't a murder weapon. Because shoes come in pairs. Um, Getting up there and swinging this other shoe 
to show what it would have been like for poor Stefan to be stabbed to death with his girlfriend's shoe. So one of these teams had a more convincing argument than the other, it would seem, because on April 8th, 2014, the jury found Anna Trujillo guilty of the murder of Stefan Anderson. So the story's over, right? That's it. We're done. She's guilty. Oh, but wait, no. Anna Trujillo still has something to say, everybody. So there's her sentencing hearing, and I'll be asking you about that in a minute. <laughs> um, but on April 10th, for her sentencing hearing, Anna finally takes the stand in her own defense. And she sits up there and talks for seven hours. Seven hours. Would you like to know what else you can do in seven hours? You can do so many that you could you yeah. could binge cheer in that time in less than that time. Exactly. You can watch the entire Star Wars original trilogy with time for a nap and a bathroom break. You could run, if you were so inclined, a full marathon slowly. I could. Uh, I mean, somebody no, could. I said if. That's not, not you or me. <laughs> uh, you could fly nonstop from Anchorage to Philadelphia. You could drive to New Orleans from Houston. <laughs> hey, you can drive halfway across the state of Texas. Start at Beaumont and just get on I-10 and go towards El Paso. You'll get a little over halfway there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So those are all things that you could do instead of listening to Anna Trujillo ramble on and on for seven straight hours about her version of the story. It was probably very entertaining. She's super animated. There's a series of photos of just the faces that she's making during this testimony. Because she's acting out. She's her. acting it all out. She got her attorney to get up and reenact the attack. The look on his face is priceless. He does not want to be up there. I found reports that during her testimony, uh, her defense attorney was off to the side going like, uh -uh. Like, uh, like trying to gesture to her to like wrap it up keep it simple it stay to the point he was he kept trying to bring her back that nope. seven hours was a rambling disjointed mess from what all of the the news media yeah. rehashed it was it was her hail mary last hurrah last time anybody's ever going to hear her story and it didn't work no at all Anna Trujillo was sentenced to life in prison for stabbing Stefan Anderson to death with a stiletto shoe. She will be eligible for parole in the year 2043 at the age of 75. Oh my god, y'all. We totally forgot while we were recording together to uh, share with you one of these reviews that restore our faith in humanity. Uh, I'm so sorry. Stephanie is also sorry. She doesn't know yet, but she will when she listens to this. Um, so here we go. Here's a review from a charming listener by the name of Squire times two. Amazing podcast. Five stars. This podcast makes me laugh, shocks me, and scares me. Wonderful storytelling with a lot of sharp wit and charm. Thank you so much, Squire Times 2. We love you right back. Wasn't the deliberation, like, the the jury only had to deliberate for less than two hours to convict her? Oh, I didn't hear that. And nice. then it took them less time to convict her. Um, it was just over an hour to convict her. And then um, five hours was the deliberation time for her sentence. Okay. So 
her testimony at the punishment phase was longer than the deliberation by the jury. <laughs> than the entire deliberation by the jury for her conviction and for her sentencing. Jeez. The whole thing. Oh, nice. So as far Lord. as the evidence, I'm, I'm going to just throw it out there because in the guilt and innocent phase, they were able to show the, um, the interrogation mm-hmm. video, which oh, also yeah. showed her meandering story and the way she Mm -hmm. was describing and explaining. And it seems like the most damaging evidence was like, in addition to the crime scene photos Mm -hmm. and the fact that there was the shoe and you have the circumstances was her, her testimony and her description of the events and the way she framed everything Mm -hmm. was, was highly prejudicial. Um, Mm -hmm. So is the fact that the um, officer that went to the scene, one of them, believed that she had you know it was all crocodile tears he, oh yeah he couldn't understand why she had been sobbing but her face was dry <laughs> and and there he was like there were no tears coming down mm-hmm. her face and you know he contrasted that with the mm-hmm. scene with what he saw and mm. uh yeah i think at, if he stewed on that for a long enough time as the as the investigation's getting rolling and then later by the time it comes up to trial and he's had a minute to think about it, that all comes together and it's very negative for Mm. for Anna Trujillo. Honestly, I don't think anybody at any point believed her. I I don't want to speak for her attorneys and you really don't want to speak for her attorneys. Uh, But well, oh, there's an article, though. So Jack Carroll her defense attorney mm-hmm. and there's a, an article about it in texas monthly and it's pretty interesting he did he believed her really and you know some i don't know if you know when you are a criminal defense attorney you have to be so invested and this is the story but he saw this tiny woman mm-hmm. you know he heard this tale he was aware of her previous abuse and he he believed it he thought this was defense huh. this is self-defense this was, you know, and then the the extreme was sudden passion. And he was behind her and he was actually shocked. He was surprised how quickly and swiftly it went the other way. So uh, that's that's where the, the gender bias in these kind of situations, I think, has come back into play. Because, like, that's how what... how would nobody would look at Stefan, giant Stefan Anderson and itty bitty Anna Trujillo and think that she did not fear for her life in a physical confrontation with this man. Well, and it's interesting you say that because um, so much of the the testimony, because mm-hmm. um, when you put it, when you raise self-defense and you're like that, the other person was the aggressor. Mm-hmm. Well, then the state is allowed to come back and say, well, you're putting at issue the character and the, um, the violent nature or aggressive nature of the victim. So mm-hmm. then they can put on evidence that the victim was actually not aggressive, oh, Okay, was not. And so it seems like there was testimony because I know, um, you know, in total, there were I know at the punishment, there were like 19 total witnesses, mm. oh, 19 witnesses. But there were, you know, definitely I'm sure there was some overlap because people testified that Stefan was not abusive, mm-hmm. that he yeah. had this calm nature. That, that he was his his ex-wife, I think, mm-hmm. came in and testified that, no, he all he ever did was uplift her yes. and and support everyone around him and just be the sweet as can be. That's right. And people um, pointed out that um, 
they thought he had been trying to turn his life around, find happiness, and that mm-hmm. he had found somebody else. And I think some of that also plants the seeds for a different kind of motive. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have this conflicting evidence and then you put it against the backdrop of Anna's story. Her narrative <sighs> just really isn't aligning with anything. Like yeah. what's corroborating her story? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Certainly she not doesn't the cab have anybody. driver. Certainly not the nope. folks at the bar. Certainly not the the officers on the scene. Mm-hmm. And so after a while, that yeah, it becomes becomes heavy. So but, um, she she has stuck with that story. Like she will still tell you that story today. I mean, what do you do? What do you do if I, that's your story? Like oh, how, you commit. How do you, you commit to it hard? Apparently. I mean, you have to, or your brain breaks, yeah. right? I, I, mean, <laughs> I guess. Because how do you even think about yourself doing such a horrible thing to another human being? Huh. Uh, so you know, you speculate if she <laughs> had regrets or not, but you know, I don't know. It's so is it um is it common for defendants to testify for seven hours at their sentencing hearing? Oh, so at the sentencing, I believed, um, you know. I thought it was the right choice that they didn't have her um, testify at the guilt and innocent phase mm-hmm. because that's h- highly risky. Um, yeah. You know, you have the the prosecution is looking at every angle. They're finding every statement, every, you know, every oath or declaration you've made, every public record. So when you do testify, if you lie or if you mm-hmm. uh, make a mistake and an error, you know, they're like, oh, but didn't you say on this other day mm-hmm. something totally different? And mm-hmm. they can just chip away at the defendant's credibility. They can say things that kind of sway you to believe, well, maybe they're not telling the whole story. So that mm-hmm. makes sense. And you're not allowed to um, prejudice the defendant because they didn't testify. Like a juror okay. is not permitted to say, well, I don't trust him because he didn't get up there and say I didn't do it. Oh, okay. So you have the right as a criminal defendant to not Mm -hmm. testify because the state has the burden of proof. At the um, punishment hearing, they had um, an expert come and help bolster her testimony about Mm -hmm. um, the sudden passion defense and Mm -hmm. discuss some of the... um, That's right, because they they tried to to claim sudden passion during the sentencing. That's right. Like, Like in the case... Like in the Francis Hall Thank you in the Francis Hall case that we just covered nine years ago in the before times prior to the apocalypse. And what a contrast, what a contrasting Mm -hmm. situation, because is somebody, is there a cat in your room looking at you from a perch? I don't know. I keep looking at you, looking up. What? I keep, your eyes were looking up in the corner and I was like, oh, I have another monitor and I moved you over oh. there so I could pull up because after this we're going to talk about the first episode of Law and Order I don't know if you watched that I did and, uh, I have yay! opinions on that that's awesome okay sorry I, I made it all weird what what was I going to say <laughs> Francis Hall stark contrast there mm-hmm. there were people testifying on her behalf and in support yeah. here mm-hmm. there were like 19 there, there were people lining up out the, the door there were ex-boyfriends coming up and saying say, do you see the scar on my face that's where violent. she bit me she's aggressive yeah. she's right and that's oh that's another important thing in the punishment stage there are um there's character evidence that is not allowed to be presented in the guilt innocent phase which can okay. come into um 
during the punishment stage. Mm-hmm. So that's where you got that, all of these past instances. And, you know, um, the reason you don't want past instances of bad conduct and the guilt in the innocent phase is because you don't want the jury thinking, oh, you did a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you must have Therefore done you this, did this bad thing ah, because okay. that's too prejudicial. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't want to convict somebody for being a jerk or, you know, a bad <laughs> person or even amoral mm-hmm on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, if the event happened on Thursday, mm-hmm. the state has to focus on the the actual crime, the instance, and the circumstances. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's a sudden passion. Um, she, I believe, Anna Trujillo, probably had to testify to support it because there oh, wasn't, okay. you know, there wasn't and that's other... why That's why the dramatic reenactment, that's why all of that. So she was just doing her best for seven hours to keep herself out of spending the rest of her life in prison. And and it is what it sounds like. Feels like from reading the um, reporting on it that it was just damaging, that it was mm-hmm. not helpful to her. It it didn't cast her in a sympathetic light. It wasn't persuasive because mm-hmm. it was this weird story that kept kind of sidestepping the event everybody was interested in. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so all of this, oh, but he abused me. Oh, but people fell in love with me. She was mm-hmm. kind of all over the place. And her yeah. lawyer was doing his best to bring her back in, mm-hmm. stick to the, you know, stick to the point, you know, make it short and sweet. And she mm-hmm. was unable to do that. And yeah. And then I what, think, oh, what? What, it's, what struck me is that from the night of the murder to her sentencing hearing over a year later, she had the same story, mm-hmm. like start to finish uh, the whole action scene that played out. Like it's like she had that from when the cops took her into custody, uh, from when she was on the phone with the 911 operator. My boyfriend mm-hmm. beat me and then I had to hit him like she was trying to tell her life story to the 911 operator. And then, you know, she the cops take her in and she's got three hours to, to tell this entire story. And it's the same story. Did you find it too perfect, like too aligned, like it was a story rather oh, it than... Was def- it, it struck me, yeah, as being like something that she had prepared. Like mm-hmm. this was the scene as she wrote it in her head. Mm-hmm. And if you, you ever do a thing where you rehearse in your head so many times that you're going to say a thing and you're going to say it a certain way, then when it, it comes time to say it and then you don't have to, you still just want to say it. <laughs> you're just going to say it. I feel like that that's what this entire story, hours and hours uh, worth of story was for her. And Which she, makes me wonder how long she had been thinking about killing him. I think as soon as he broke up with her. That's my yeah. hot take is that there was definitely competing evidence about yeah. what was happening between them and the state mm-hmm. of their relationship. Anna really, I, I feel like she knew that it was important to establish mm-hmm. the sudden passion defense. And it was yeah. important that she showed that, you know, she had adequate cause. And that would mm-hmm. be that that provocation that would um, render, you know, somebody unable to coolly reflect. Um, mm-hmm. There would be it would be cause sufficient to render the mind incapable of cool mm-hmm. reflection. And it would have been it would have had to be caused by a provocation at the time. Mm-hmm. And we talked about all of that in the other um, sudden passion episode Mm -hmm. and so she was looking at for premeditated 
first degree felony murder, she was looking at up to $10,000 fine Mm -hmm. and prison time between five and 99 years. Like, you know, life sentence. Yeah. But if it was a crime of passion, that would be a felony. It would be a felony of the second degree. And the punishment would have the $10,000 fine, but limit present um, prison time to between two years to a maximum of 20 years. Okay. So, yeah. And remember that, um, you know, in the crash course of sudden passion last time, this is the defense that's raised in the punishment stage. Uh-huh. And the punishment stage, when you're assessing and figuring out the appropriate sentence, that's when you look at all the aggravating factors and all the mitigating factors mm-hmm. And this would have been one that reduced the grade of her her penalty. Right. But, um, you know, clearly, as we noticed, that <laughs> she did not show by a preponderance of the evidence that um, she was um, so impassioned mm-hmm. and provoked by an adequate cause that mm-hmm. um, a person would be incapable of cool reflection. That I didn't mean, buy it. She, she clearly felt that it was an adequate provocation. Uh, but the rest of uh, the uh, city of Houston and the legal system therein did not agree with her in that moment. No, they really didn't. No, ma'am. I'm so sorry. And um, this was a really interesting contrast from the other one, for sure. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, here we've got this kind of volatile relationship. You have all of these weird biases and kind of, mm-hmm. you're right, it, it was 2013, yet mm-hmm. there's still a stigma associated with being... A man that's in an abusive relationship and situation. Mm -hmm. And also, I guess, somebody of that stature. Can you imagine that, like, you know... You're um, a wealthy white man in Texas. You are the top of the food chain. Right. I could... And, like, that... Yeah, that has a certain weight to it. Nobody's going to believe that you're being abused by your minority girlfriend now. Ah, I will say, though, um, it was I, I caught it in the reporting. People did seem to kind of latch on to this Swedish born scientist. Scientists mm-hmm. are cool and reserved. He was a researcher. Right. Mm-hmm. These are people that are, you know, constantly in a state they're, of calm. They're cerebral and thoughtful. That's right. And, and all of that, all of those stereotypes. And I read Mexican born native multiple times. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Constantly oh. referring. She was born in Mexico, but she grew up in Waco. Right. Like she is a Texan. Yes. Don't you, but she's constantly referred to as a native born Mexican. Yes. In all of the reporting. So it's like, let's be terrified of all immigrants of that are brown. Now. And it was. And it seems like that's appealing to that. Oh, because, you know, oh, clearly well, she why. was crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think this this case really did bring a clash of mm-hmm. kind of internal biases. Biases? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Biases? Bi- biases? You know, things. I think it's important to call out those uh, prejudices mm-hmm. and when we run into them. And yeah, yeah I, I do not dispute the uh, the jury's determinations mm-hmm. in this case. Right. By a There's mile. no argument there. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, it seems to me that justice may have been done here. Uh, did she appeal okay. at all? She sure did. Um, and as as one might expect, um, her appeal did not rise to the level of um, <laughs> demonstrating that she was entitled to an appellate remedy. Um, mm-hmm. She she had a couple claims. um one of her claims was that she was deprived 
um, her right to counsel because um, during the period you have, okay, and mm-hmm. it's a very procedural kind of issue that um, during the time in which she would have to file a motion for new trial, um, she lost her trial counsel. Her mm-hmm. trial counsel, um, I guess, um, he withdrew from the case two days before that deadline. Huh. It was like two okay. or three days. And then she obtained new new appellate counsel thereafter. And mm-hmm. so she claimed to be harmed by that. And mm-hmm. the court looked at that and, you know, applied the proper legal standard and said, no, there's first off when you go through a full trial and you have, you know, good counsel mm-hmm. and you have been satisfactorily defended, there's a high presumption Mm-hmm. that you have not been deprived your right to counsel. Right. No. And there there was a two-day lag. Come on, girl. That's right. And then um, let's see. The second major argument she made was that the trial court erred in allowing improper character evidence before the mm-hmm. jury during the guilt and innocent phase. And this was, I thought, an interesting argument. So yeah. the, the rule, and it's in the Texas Rules of Evidence, um, and mm-hmm. it's an evidentiary rule in, I want to say all jurisdictions, but, you know, check your own jurisdiction. But rule oh, yeah, I'm 404. totally going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't everybody? Who does it? Doesn't I'm everybody Google my jurisdiction. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so character evidence is not allowed in a criminal trial against mm-hmm. the defendant, except for where it's allowed in particular instances. And character evidence is how others perceive you. Okay. It is your character in the community, your mm-hmm. attributes, your traits. And it's um, the rule is basically that evidence of a person's character or character trait is not admissible to prove that on a particular occasion, the person acted in accordance with that character trait. Meaning okay. you can't show that somebody has been a shoplifter on mm-hmm. Friday and Saturday to prove that they were shoplifting on Sunday. Okay, because. but could you, but okay, in what case can you use so. character? <laughs> because character witness is a thing that comes up in all of the cop shows. So, yes. And so there are, there are definitely ways, like if you're going to get um, certain types of character evidence in, there are rules, mm-hmm. there are certain notices, there are certain instances you can show it in a criminal case. Like if you're going to mm-hmm. prove motive, if you're going to prove opportunity, intent, preparation plan knowledge there's a whole bunch of them mm-hmm. um for example if um somebody has shoplifted in a very specific way like they're mm-hmm. the only one that does this like they have i don't know i'm just making all of this up but you know they're they wear these certain wacky pants <laughs> in order to put all of the the shoplifted goods it's like your mc hammer balloon pants that's right because they've got the big pockets you still and... hold it like like a whole dog yeah (laughs) that's right i don't know why you're stealing dogs but you could and and then you use very special supplies right and Mm -hmm. um you know maybe you want to show that that person had been accumulating these supplies and these very sassy (laughs) pants and so then you want to show you got the pants you got you got like a pantyhose on your head these are clearly brand of pantyhose the wacky shoplifting pants that you know he was (laughs) (laughs) wearing at all the times so like instead of juicy across the butt it's the shoplifting pants so that was a really terrible off the cuff hypothetical but (laughs) no i love it but for example if you can if the prosecutor can find a way to make that character evidence fall into a particular exception 
Mm-hmm. You know, they have to uh, provide notice to the other side that they're going to do that. So then the other side can figure out their response, perhaps okay. challenge that. Um, but the idea is you can't show evidence of a crime to show that that person on a particular occasion acted in accordance with that crime. Because otherwise okay, you're but- convicting somebody on the basis of having been guilty before. But isn't that how that works? It, I know. You're supposed but, to. No. You don't. Whoa. We don't want that, though. We don't okay, want. Okay. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. You're right. Like. You can't. Okay. So think but about. But tell me why. Because. I think about how prejudicial that is that you did something mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Well, now. Now the burden isn't just to show that there's reasonable doubt I didn't do it today. Because it it's some other amorphous standard that you would have to show. Mm-hmm. I'm not the kind of person. That would commit a crime. Well, that's not okay. the defendant's burden. The defendant, so, it, the defendant doesn't have a burden. It's mm-hmm. a, that's so weird. Was my voice weird just then? Because it feels like I started talking like. <laughs> yeah, I mean a little bit. Sorry but, about that. But no, you were just super into it, and the moment turned you into a teenage boy for a second, <laughs> just a second. But it's okay. We're back. So what it seems like then is this: this kind of you know compartmentalizing where you can bring in character type testimony is uh, the difference between the legal system and uh, my heart and brain system where I'm like, you did it before you're going to do it again. You probably did it right then. But think about how compelling that is and think about Mm -hmm. how many cases the state would win if every time you brought in a criminal defendant, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not even talking about what happened on Tuesday and that's the day Mm -hmm. the crime that you were charged with. They're just talking about all the other days. Right. And so that it would be so easy to totally not even look at the crime itself, Mm -hmm. but to look at all of this other shit about the defendant. So it sounds like this rule is a way to sort of streamline the focus of the legal proceedings and keep them dispassionate and focused on the actual act. Yes. And in another, there's um, also rules that prevent the use of character evidence um to you can't use the character evidence against the victim okay so you can't you know say oh the victim was this terrible shady person that committed Mm -hmm. these crimes because then again you're you're not focusing on whether the act was committed Mm -hmm. or use character evidence of the victim to further condemn the perpetrator like oh like in stefan's case he was so sweet and everybody Mm -hmm. loved him so much why would anybody kill him you know and so so, okay and one of the major exceptions has to do with when character is brought in issue for Mm -hmm. example when you say it was self-defense they were the aggressor Mm -hmm. well now you're you've brought into issue that that trait which would allow the other side to rebut that to say, okay. now I'm going to put up evidence on the other side. So when the character of the person is an element of the crime? Is that what we're saying? No, no. So, no, um, no. well, the- I, I said that like I know what I'm talking about. Like <laughs> I'm like, you like that? Well, and it's so funny because if you nod while you're talking, which you do a lot, I'm just always uh-huh. bound to be like, yeah, yeah, wait, wait, no, stop. <laughs> I like what you're saying. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. No, but I'm nodding and it makes you want to nod along with me. It really does. And, and now I have gained agreement. No, you nodded. Let the record show. <laughs> so, you totally uh, nodded. So remember, self-defense is um, that is the defendant's affirmative defense to a conduct. Mm. Okay. And so 
when you raise when that's your defense, you're saying they were the aggressor. Well, Mm -hmm. then if the state is saying, no, it wasn't self-defense, it was, you know, premeditated or, you Mm -hmm. know, it was you were the first aggressor. You know, they're going to rebut your allegation Mm -hmm. of self-defense and that the the victim was the the aggressor Um, in the in the case here. So um, the appellate court had to deal with a, uh, an instance where the state was trying to bring in the face bite. Mm-hmm. So um, the state was trying to um, bring up the fact that Anna Trujillo had mm-hmm. bitten the face of Stefan when he was having beer with a friend and tacos mm-hmm. and that it was totally unprovoked. Right. And they brought it up in the way that tends to be a let like you can. There are certain um, ways of introducing evidence or alluding to things that mm-hmm are allowed and the state was kind of walking the line because you want to kind of you can draw out certain things Mm -hmm. um but what happened here was the court was like first off there was no objection there's no proper Mm -hmm. objection and so rule number one when you're trying to appeal is that you have to appeal based on a preserved error Uh you have to raise your complaint in the trial court so that the judge there who's calling Mm -hmm. the balls and the strikes has a chance to deal with it, to remedy it. Right. So if they were going to object to the face bite, they should have done it then. Right. And so at the not f- as an appeal situation after the fact. Exactly. Because at that mm-hmm. point, the trial court can't even fix it. Yeah. You can't go back and erase the face bite from the jury's brain. Well, like how that's true. Or can you? But can you? Ah, I mean, that's that's yeah. the big trick is once something's out there, like if you've ever yeah. seen in a movie where somebody says, but you didn't care about that while you were murdering the guy, did you? Mm-hmm. And then the other side goes, objection! And the trial, or like, I think the... it was in A Time to Kill, where mm-hmm. Kevin Spacey provoked Samuel L. Jackson into saying, yeah, I'm glad they died, and I hope they burn in hell. And Matthew McConaughey's like, no, 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 object, object. And the jury was supposed to somehow ignore that. That's right. Yeah. They'll say, strike that, or, you know, the mm-hmm. jury will disregard. Well, that's what happens here. They're... They said the jury will disregard it. And so mm-hmm. the the thing about that is... And the jury's like, but I cannot disregard that. Like, my brain hurt it. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So mm-hmm. you're with it. Yeah. Um, sure. <laughs> but what happened is when that, um, when that material was raised, the mm-hmm. defense objected relevance. And the rules for preservation are you have to object. Mm-hmm. You have to give your reason for objecting. And then you have to obtain a ruling from the trial court. Mm-hmm. So the objection was not impermissible character evidence. Oh, it was just relevance. It was just relevance. Which, and, I don't know. It seems relevant to me. It, it shows a pattern of violent behavior towards him, but okay. Relevance, like everything is relevant. Relevance is yeah. such a, there's such a low threshold to show mm-hmm. something is relevant. And mm-hmm. so that's right. But the judge was like, you know what? The jury will disregard it. So mm-hmm. even though... It was the wrong objection. The The judge dealt with it. Mm-hmm. So um, the court looked at that and said, well, you weren't prejudiced by it because the court did tell the jury to disregard it. Oh, OK. So now it is not a valid reason to appeal because so the jury, said, we have to assume the jury did not take that into consideration. That's right. And so you would okay. have to show if you're objecting on or, or if you're appealing on that basis, that that error was enough mm-hmm. to change the outcome. So Mm -hmm. I think the court was also like, look, even if we grant you that, even if we follow your argument to conclusion, it Mm -hmm. wasn't going to change the outcome of this situation. And look, somebody got bit on the face while he was trying to eat a taco and have a beer 
I feel like that is relevant no matter what we're talking about. <laughs> so then the um, I think the last one, the last grounds for appeal, she said she had mm-hmm. um, she made an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And okay. so we're not going to get said her lawyer was shit. Basically, like that he made a decision. Oh. <laughs> no. So that um, she believed that the expert that testified on her behalf for the sudden passion mm-hmm. defense should have testified on her behalf during the guilt and innocent phase, not oh. during the punishment phase. And that if she if that um, expert had testified earlier, it would have helped mm-hmm. her defense. And OK. The court pretty ably knocked that down. And the standard for ineffective assistance of counsel is it it means performance by your lawyer that is so deficient as to be a constitutional Mm -hmm. violation. And he shows up stumbling drunk to court. I mean, it's like stumbling drunk and sleeping and also (laughs) like never read the case file. Like it's the bar is is pretty high. I don't know if it's that. But you know, that would be funny. It's like he could be drunk (laughs) or asleep and asleep, but if he's one or the other, it's fine. No, (laughs) no, that's not it at all. Texas courts are crazy, guys. No, I'm just saying it's it's a high bar. You have to show that your counsel was so deficient. And clearly, as we saw, that Mm -hmm. you know, she had counsel, she had good counsel that was really trying to uh, make the best of the facts and Mm -hmm. evidence and defend her. But, um, you have to also show that not only was counsel so deficient, but that there was a reasonable probability that but for counsel's error mm-hmm. or the omission, that the result of the proceedings would have been different. Mm. So, okay. So the court looked at, had your expert, you know, testified earlier, we still mm-hmm. don't think, even if we just accept without even going into how your counsel performed, if we just accept that you met the first hurdle, Mm-hmm. There's no way that we can say there's a reasonable probability that the outcome of this case would have been different. Right. Okay. So those those were the issues. She mm-hmm. she uh that was the best appeal I think, you know, she could have made under the circumstances. It seems right. like it was a long trial. There was a lot mm-hmm. of evidence. Mm-hmm. For real. And 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 a lot of testimony. 19 like. witnesses at the punishment phase. <laughs> so it wasn't even just like just Anna was seven hours. God. Then you have to add on the testimony of 19 other people. Right. Like, so this was just this was a Lord of the Rings marathon of a sentencing hearing, <laughs> like uh. director's cut version. Lord have mercy. Yeah. It's so much time. It really was. And I mean, what an in- interesting case. And I really like that it contrasts so nicely with the idea of what that provocation would look like. And mm-hmm. that was what we saw in the Francis Hall case. Like we yeah. were we were all able to attach to that mm-hmm. case and say, OK, I could see somebody losing it. Yeah. Like if anybody listening moment. to the sounds, if anybody who can hear the sound of our voice right now uh, has not listened to the sudden passion defense episode about francis hall go back and listen to that it's a couple of episodes ago uh and you'll see the stark difference between that case and this case right so for sure yeah this is not look i just i just really i just really don't like anna trujillo (laughs) i was so i was so biased so she did bring so biased i know and she did bring up i will say there was evidence and i do believe it that she mm-hmm. had abusive relationships and I'm that sure. she was the victim yeah. of assault. 
I mean, mm-hmm. that's right. But hmm, I could understand that it mm-hmm. was a hard one for the jury to buy that right. in that moment she was going through mm-hmm. the sudden passion that made her, you know. Um, well, but she was just... not like nothing about her behavior indicated traumatized person. Mm-hmm. She she was not she there was she had none of the classic signs of somebody in a, a fit of, of of legitimate PTSD mm-hmm. who's who is reacted in this um, in this really intense way yeah. to a legitimate trigger to actual trauma. Like there's none uh, of that. Well, she had guess, her story ready. That's I think that's what it is. And um, because mm-hmm. I can see how the sudden passion defense would be applicable to situations of prolonged domestic abuse. Absolutely. Right? There would yeah. be just that one triggering thing that was so much that it mm-hmm. overcame that person's ability, but not necessarily this one here as demonstrated by all of this body of evidence. No, Lord. There's an entire TV series about it. It's called Snapped. Oh. You ever seen, you ever seen Snapped? So I, oh my gosh, I remember that I would see um, commercials for it back when we had mm-hmm. the cable. No, Snapped was, Snapped, oh God, it is so much, it is the potato chips of true crime TV. It is so, <laughs> it is so greasy and salty. It's so tacky. Oh. Like the Snapped episode about, um, uh, God, what's her name? The the Black Widow of Westlake. Oh, yeah. What's her name? Yeah. Back in the... Yeah. God, I don't remember her name because I am old. Because uh, she has a moniker and you remembered the moniker. I remember the moniker. Um, Celeste Beard. There it there is. It is. <laughs> There's a snapped episode about her and they really, really got into like the lesbian relationship. And there were all these like like steamy pans to to women's cleavage pressed up against another women's cleavage so snapped not the classiest source for <laughs> it's like the uh, inquirer information yes drama. it is the it is a tv tabloid it's like the world that daily is entirely on women killing people oh usually my gosh men. are we gonna keep in all of our smack talking of tabloids and snap <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's pure opinion. It's opinion. It's puffery. That's just uh, my opinion is that Snapped is tacky, and I love it. Anyway, I don't have a funny way to end this other than uh, oh, I don't like Anna Trujillo. Man, oh, like that's all I got. Stefan's first name was Elf. Elf. Alf. 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 A L F. I saw that, and then I decided that's insane. There's no way that's actually his first name. He's not actually named after an alien who eats cats. That's not a thing. I mean, yeah, apparently, I saw it on the papers. Um, yeah, Alf. Oh, Alf. Poor, Alf. poor, sweet Stefan. No wonder he went by Stefan. Yes. I think the takeaway, the takeaway from this whole case is, um, high-heeled shoes are not just dangerous to the people who wear them. That's right. And you know how you avoid having to wear them, having to hmm. encounter them? <laughs> how? Stay home and happily socially distanced. <laughs> with your... Stay home. That's right. With Nobody your... expects you to wear five and a half inch stiletto heels in your house. With your pajama pants. With your pajama pants on. If you want to wear them just to feel fancy and clack clack around your own house, go for it. That's right. Go for it. You do you. I'm not going to do it. I own heels like that. Well, all right. (laughs) Thank you all for listening and bearing with us as we figure out our new pandemic podcasting format. 
If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, please hop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a review. That kind of thing just really brightens up our whole daggum day. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com or find us on all the social medias at OSWPodYall. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. Um, if you would like to help support the show, we would love you for that. And uh, you can find us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash OSWPodYall. Patrons get access to all kinds of cool stuff. Like uh, right now, we are recapping Law & Order SVU from the very first episode. It's a really good time. I hope you tune in. And yeah, I think that's it. So y'all stay safe out there and we'll see you next time. <laughs>